This is Hunting Land, the podcast for land hunters and landowners with real-time rut reports, waterfowl migrations, and how-tos for habitat management and land investment. All right, well, let's get a rut report, Clint. We've got Matt Brock on the line. Matt, what's going on in your part of the world? Things are wide open right now. It's uh, looking good. I've seen a lot of deer, uh, really good deer, hit the ground recently. Got to put my hands on a few. I visited some local taxidermists, and they've got a lot of deer coming in, um, mostly bucks, which, you know, typically outside of the rut, you have more does coming into processors, and now they're starting to see that shift. Um, so the bucks are on their feet, and uh, I've been out hunting a few times over the last week and a half, and I've seen quite a few myself. Well, good. I know we've talked with you before about Bankhead National Forest and that rut being, you know, kind of more towards uh, early part of November and Thanksgiving, right around the opening of rifle season. But where are you doing, uh, where are you seeing most of your activity right now? What counties? Uh, most of this activity is going to be in Walker, Fett, Marion, Lamar, and Franklin County, which the farther north you get up um, toward Franklin and Colbert, you start to get that mid to late January breeding. Um, so they're a couple of weeks behind us. But it's, uh, it's really picked up in Fayette, Mary Lamar, and Walker County in just the last week. So the weather hasn't had an effect on things. Well, the one thing to remember, uh, deer are going to breed regardless of the weather. Uh, they're going to come into their estrus about the same time each year. Now, the visible effects of the rut sometimes can be, you know, decreased by weather. You know, deer activity just seems to be better on clear, cool days. And we haven't had a lot of that. We've had a lot of rain. And, you know, the, the people who are hunting... And I, it's terrible weather. I hate getting out in it. I used to chase them in the rain, snow, it didn't matter. <laughs> the older I get, I try to pick my days a little more wisely. Mm-hmm. Um, but folks who are going out are seeing deer and killing good deer. Well, I'm kind of the same way, but here lately, man, you hadn't had a choice. If you wanted to hunt, there hadn't been a, you know, a cold snap to speak of in probably 10 days or so now, I guess. And uh, mm-hmm. you just got to go. We had a giant moon and mm-hmm. it just yep. uh, it's been been pretty unfriendly here lately. It has. It definitely has. Now, we're talking about pre-rut, which is often confused with peak rut. Peak ruts when you're probably not going to see as many deer up and on their feet because they're locked down with their does, right? Yeah, and, you know, looking back, I've collected a lot of data over the years on buck harvests and uh, just observations while I'm hunting. And it seems to me I see the majority of buck movement, cruising, uh, you know, just general activity up on their feet uh, about 10 to 14 days prior to peak breeding Mm -hmm. a lot of my friends they kill a lot of good deer in the rut i've never been one of those um i usually kill them pre-rut or post-rut during the rut i just don't see many very big deer that i'd like to take um on their feet and uh you know they'll they'll push the does and i actually got to witness this last week had a nice three-year-old buck tending a doe and he pushed her into the thickest nastiest cover that you could imagine and she bedded down he bedded down with her and i sat there for a couple more hours and never saw him come out and it was only about an acre worth of very thick cover wow so so they stayed in there and i would imagine that you know that's what a lot of mature bucks do that brings to mind something uh deer pushing a a doe into thick cover like that if he's he's doing that to try to keep other bucks from intercepting him right mm-hmm, mm-hmm. now when when we start to get, we're bound to get a really strong cold front here sometime soon, and we'll have you know winds that'll be fifteen to twenty mile an hour, um, and and I just hear guys all over the state everywhere say that you know well I don't kill many deer in in high heavy winds and things like that I don't think they move. Is that a good time 
to really get tight to a betting area like that and because and use yes. the wind to your advantage to keep them from being able to hear you get close? Absolutely. Going back to the observation data that I told you I've collected over the years, I have killed more big deer on clear days immediately after a front with a 20 plus mile per hour wind and all other conditions combined. Now, what do you do on those? Is that what you do? You get really close to bedding areas? I try to get as close to thick cover as I can, maybe known travel routes that are located nearby uh, creeks, uh, cutovers, but yeah, anything uh, that's thick that I have historically known deer to travel through or bed in. I'll get just on the downwind side of that. And uh, you, you, that's one good thing about those heavy north-northwest winds. When we have a front come through, they're pretty consistent. And that's about the only time we have a consistent wind is when, you ha- when we have a, a northern front. So, um, you know, I, I bank on the wind doing what the, the weatherman tells me he's going to do <laughs> a lot of times here lately. Um, they've been missing it, and it's been pretty variable. So, mm-hmm. you know, I like those strong north-northwest winds, and I'll get just downwind of a bedding area or travel route, and I've had very good success on those days. What do you like? Now, that's another thing. It's kind of a, a point of contention. I hear a lot of the a lot of the, the how-to guys in deer hunting are talking about Midwestern deer, and bedding and cover is much different in the Midwest than it is in the South. Mm-hmm. So when when you think of a bedding area, a true bedding area, and, and some really good cover for for whitetails in the Southeast, what what are you going to look for first? If you're looking at a at a, a map of a thousand acres and you've got some pine plantation and roads and creeks and some food plots, what's the first thing you look for? The absolute thickest stuff that you can find on a map. What's that and, typically going to be? Is that going to be a cutover that's a few years yes. old? Yeah, a young cutover, anywhere from three to five years old. You know, uh, any young storm plantation. damage that's come through. Yeah, young plantation, storm damage, uh, down trees. I've, I've seen several bucks or jumped several bucks out of uh, big oak trees that had fallen in the woods. Uh, it may be a, a wide open, you know, mature hardwood forest and there's a down tree or a couple trees down from lightning or wind or whatever the case may be. And uh, I've jumped bucks out of those before. Going back to on the uh, the buck that I saw tending that doe last week, he pushed her into a, a, a thicket of privet hedge. You know, it was very, very thick. The privet was about 10 to 12 feet tall. And, you know, if you get down and look at it, it's not even something you'd think most deer would walk through. Um, it's just that thick. But that's where I have seen a lot of bucks bed in particular. Um, but one thing I've noticed, they'll always have some kind of escape route. Right. Um, you know, they always have a means to get out of there without you seeing them. <laughs> right. <laughs> they have a will to live and they use it in every, every aspect of their life. So, well, Matt, that's some good tips this week, man. We appreciate the, uh, the report. I hope you catch up to one here pretty soon. Well, I appreciate it and I hope you do the same. All right, Clint. Joining us on the show today is Mike Sievering. Mike is the conservation director for the National Trapper Association. He's also the president of the Alabama Trappers and Predator Control Association. And Mike, the title of this show is The Poachers You Are Allowing on Your Land. And I know if anybody that owns land or, or manages land does not like poachers coming on their property, but the reality is that we're all allowing some to steal uh, part of the wildlife population from us. So, Mike, how big a problem are predators for landowners right now? Do you have any stats on, let's just talk about, say, coyotes, for example. Yes, sir, I do. Uh, several years ago, there was a study done in East Alabama and portions of Georgia uh, where trappers caught a number of coyotes and put radio collars on them. Well, they found an active den site on 
one of the collared animals, put a camera on it. And during fawning season, early in July and August, in a 30-day period, there was, was either 17 or 18 deer fawns were taken into that den site by that pair of coyotes. Wow. So pretty substantial. Yeah, and that's uh, for guys, and you, you're starting to hear rumblings uh, around the state of Alabama for sure, but I, I mean, I see it all over the internet, and people are they're complaining about deer populations, uh, they're complaining about turkey populations, they're kind of saying, you know, maybe the heyday is over, you know, and what, what it seems like I'm seeing is there's a lot of emphasis that's being placed on providing food for animals, but there's very little emphasis being placed on controlling predators other than shooting them whenever you see them when you're out hunting. Where is trapping right now? Uh, obviously, the fur trade is down, right, Mike? Uh, yeah. Fur trade is really down. Uh, price of pelts are at an all-time low right now. But that doesn't cre- keep the predator population in- intact or uh, in check. I've talked to a lot of clubs. I used to, I retired from the state of Alabama for 30 years as the fur biologist, so I talked to a lot of deer clubs about predator control. Their big thing was, oh, we're spending lots of money on deer and improvement of habitat, proteins, all that kind of good stuff. And I asked them what kind of numbers or how many predators are you taking out? And the first response I would get would be, huh? What what do you mean taking them out? I said, you're feeding predators, partner. All your deer fawns are going out the window. I mean, it's great you're doing this for the deer, but managing that predator base has got to be part of your game plan from now on it's not just coyotes either i mean uh of course you know everybody thinks about coyotes and bobcats but what about nest predators you've got what what's going on with raccoon populations right now specifically i want to talk about raccoons specifically what are some of the factors that are influencing raccoon populations right now low fur prices there's no doubt low fur prices average coon pelt right now southern Coon pelt stretched and dried is going for a dollar twenty-five. Uh, when I was in college forty years ago, I was selling them for forty dollars to forty-five dollars. So prices dropped wow. dramatically, which is but the population increase, increase in predator base means a reduction in game populations. Now, do raccoons prey on anything? You know, as far as a hunter's concerned, are they doing anything besides nest predation? Uh, or is that predominantly what, what their biggest you know, influence is on, our turkeys and our quail? Well, as far as other game species, yeah, that's that's pretty much it, uh, getting ground-nesting birds. Uh, right now, a lot of people are supplemental feeding or feeding their deer, and into the spring, they'll feed their deer. Now, if you go back and look at the cameras they've got on those uh, deer feeders, and you got to wade through the coons to get to the deer. 20, I'm one of those guys. <laughs> <Got them. laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, the other thing is possums, another ground nesting predator that people don't think about. I know a lot of guys that are trapping, you've got to wade through the possums to get to the good stuff, the coons and coyotes and foxes and bobcats. Right. Those populations have just, they've just climbed astronomically in the last five to 10 years, especially on raccoons. Well, I mean, we've got, we've obviously got a big problem with nest predators and I'm hearing, I'm hearing the same things from the turkey hunters is that they're killing less turkeys. They're hearing less birds gobbling. And we're starting to hear rumblings from people saying we need to lower the, lower the limits on how many turkeys are being killed. But I mean, doesn't it, it seems to me that if, if a guy is, is truly worried about, about turkey populations and he's not trapping, you know, 
controlling how many you shoot is, is, is one method, but man, I'd sure rather just trap some coons and some possums and be able to shoot more turkeys. More turkey. It was always amazing to me that when I was still working for the state, we would issue permits after deer season to shoot hogs at night. And I would try to tell them that's not real effective. First off, a hog's eyes don't shine at nighttime when you hit them with a spotlight. So you're looking at a black blob, and you're going to kill one animal probably, or two. The best thing to do is set that trap. It's working for you 24-7. You don't have to be out there. I mean, you check them daily. A trap is a lot more effective than trying to shoot down a population that's out of control. What have you seen as far as trapping nest predators, Raccoon, raccoons and possums we're talking about predominantly. What kind of improvements have you seen? Uh, I know you've worked with a lot of clubs and a lot of landowners um, mm-hmm. that have implemented trapping on their properties. Is it an immediate result? You know, if they're trapping, in, are they going to see results in 12 months? Is it 24 months, 36 months? I'd say within the first year and a half, you're going to start seeing some results. Controlling predator populations is not a short-term fix. I mean, you can go out there, catch a few right off the bat, and you think, well, I'm golden now. Well, there's 30 or 40 waiting back in the wings to fill that available habitat. So you're going to have to continue controlling those populations, those predator populations through trapping. Well, Mike, I got a few specific questions for you. I was talking with somebody the okay. other day, and they, they were uh, wanting to trap some coons. And uh-huh. they said, you know, they were looking for a dog-proof trap. Uh, you know, I told them that there's there's a lot of dog proof traps out there, and I they had an interesting question that I, I just didn't know the answer to. They said, "Well, I've got a." They were talking about trapping at their house, and they said, "Well, I've got a cat." Uh, these dog proof traps are they are they safe for for all pets, or is it just dogs? Would a cat get its its paw stuck in there? Well, I have heard of cats fishing around down in those and getting their getting caught, mm-hmm. but uh, they're easy to release with dog proof traps too. Right. Once you get the animal down, you just reach down there and pop it off his foot. Right, That's right. Not a problem. Well, here's another question for you, Mike. When I was out in Montana uh, a couple years ago, and I was actually elk hunting, and I was talking to the guys out there who were uh, really frustrated by wolf populations. And mm-hmm. one of the, uh, the frustrations they had is that elk being herding type animals in the wintertime when the snow began to fall, those elk naturally want to move down into the valleys and Mm -hmm. they use their herd mentality to fend off predators because the humans were in the, in those valleys building, you know, living there, those elk were having to stay at higher altitudes for longer, uh, longer time. And the wolves that had been reintroduced, which, that's a whole nother thing. It's a different wolf altogether, a much larger wolf. But the wolves that were reintroduced were actually having an easier time preying upon the elk than what they should have had. And so it's leading to a lot more elk kill, wolf kill, than, right. than what naturally should happen. And so one of the big things I hear people saying about trapping is, you know, well, that coyote or that bobcat or, or that uh, raccoon or possum, he's just doing what a predator does he's just being himself and why do we need to go out and control that population so i want your thoughts on that why does a hunter need to control predators well if you don't control the predators your game base or game populations are going to decrease lots of times it's cyclic like on bobcats and say 
rabbits, they're on a seven-year cycle. They both oscillate up and down. Uh, seven years, they'll have a high. At the end of seven years, they'll bottom out, and the predator population will bottom out. But with an overabundance of deer in this country, uh, I don't think that's the situation. Now, out west, you've got those herds of animals, the deer and the elk. They, they tend to yard up in the wintertime. They're going to be in that deep snow, and a wolf can take that take up deep snow to his advantage when it comes to preying on that population. Down here, uh, I think what we have done over the centuries is we have modified the habitat where we have created more edge, which that's great for game populations, but it's also good for predator populations. So you get an increasing prey base, you're going to have an increasing predator base. So you've got to go in there and maintain those. A predator population. Yeah, I think I think that's an important point. Is that I, I hear this a lot from from folks that are are uh, I would say more on the environmentalist side, mm-hmm. and it's I think I think it's a misconception that they they like to talk about nature and they like to talk about the wilderness like humans are mm-hmm. a part of nature. It's always right. this thing out there that's its own microcosm. That you fenced that, off that, and you, you never go into. Right. The, the humans are, in, we're invading that mm-hmm. and, and we're disrupting right. that, right? But but we're not disrupt. I don't think we are. We're not disrupting that. We are part of that. And because that's we're true. part of it and we're changing the landscape, changing the habitat constantly through timbering, through farming through building all the different things that we do we also have a responsibility to manage the populations whether it's game or predator uh and most people don't do that and i mean i'm guilty of it myself i do a lot more hunting than i do trapping and and predator management so it is important it's just part of a management system that has to be incorporated in one of the properties you either lease or own and hunt on it's just sound management to manage predators. You're managing your game populations. Why not manage your predator populations so your game populations will flourish? And to those systems, typically how many, if you're going to start trapping, what kind of cost are you looking at and what kind of numbers in terms of number of traps and types do you recommend well, per acre or per tract or however you would approach it? It depends on the habitat, to be quite honest with you. I mean, if if I'm trapping coons, I'm not going to go out in the middle of a pine plantation. Uh, you're going to catch a big boar coon out there, but the sows and kits, they're going to be down around water most of the time. As far as the cost, the DP traps that we've talked about, I know that Duke Trap over in West Point, Mississippi, sells a pretty good trap. I like it. It's about $12 a piece. They are very effective on raccoons. How as many do you need on a track? Depends on the habitat and what kind of population you got in there. So, I'd buy a dozen just to get started because okay. there's all kinds of places you could put them. I see a lot of people put them along the roadsides in the ditches and culverts. Is that effective or is that just convenient for them? That's convenient. Convenient. Well, and you the know, problem is if you're on if you're on public road and you're doing that, that's illegal. You can't trap the right of way of a road system. Yeah, a public yeah. road legally. So, it, I mean, it sounds like to me a, a 50-pound sack of corn costs $7, and yep. a Duke dog-proof trap costs $12. Yep. I would I would venture to say that you're going to have a much greater effect on the amount of deer that you will kill, amount of turkeys that you will kill, 
by buying a $12 dog-proof trap than you will a $7 bag of corn. Well, you'll definitely get benefit out of that trap by catching as many coons and possums as you can get out of that area. Uh, as far as coyotes, that's a different ball game. A little bit different cost spread right there. Uh, the trap that I prefer, it's called an MB550. It's an offset jaw, thick cast jaw, so it just literally holds the animal's foot. There's a gap there for blood flow. It doesn't cut the blood flow off, it just holds the animal there. Those things are about 210 to $225 a dozen. It's a, it's truly an investment. And of course, there's some lower grade traps you can buy, a little bit more inexpensive. If you weigh that against the cost of fertilizer, seed, tractor, fuel, and your time, I mean, that still seems pretty reasonable as right. far as the effect goes. Oh, yeah. You just have to be dedicated to it. And with, like running foothold traps, by law, you have to check them 24, every 24 hours. So you've got a commitment of time. You've got to be there too. So a lot of guys, they hunt on the weekend and they don't have time to do that during the week. They may have to hire it out to somebody, a professional trapper to take care of their problems. Where do you find out about how to locate your, I guess, your uh, most convenient professional trapper? Well, you can go to our website, which is atpca.org, Alabama Trapper and Predator Control Association.org, and we have a list of nuisance trappers available there by county. Um, these are guys that do this kind of thing for a living. I believe that the Conservation Department has a, also a website that has those uh, trappers available also. Are there any cost share programs out there for, for removing predators? Not that I'm aware of, no, sir. Well, Mike, it, it, it sounds like your trapping is really just another excuse to go to the hunting camp. And personally, I, I don't, I'd like more reasons to be in the woods at different times of the year. And, you know, it's a good, it seems like a good way. Do you find that uh, children uh, really enjoy doing and learning about trapping and, and that folks, once they get exposed to it and kind of learn the curve, is it something that, that they enjoy doing, or do they feel like it's just something they have to do? I think a lot of them enjoy it. They find out there's more to it than what you think. <laughs> you got a, you got an animal, say a, a red fox is a good example. A red fox has a home range of one and a half square miles to two square miles. You're going to try to make that red fox step on a pan of a trap that is no bigger than a silver dollar <laughs> in a two-square-mile area you got to know what's going on right? <laughs> in order to make that happen. <laughs> so it, it, it's a good learning thing. Make, it actually makes the kids and, a, and the parents actually better hunters because they get more used to looking for animal signs. Side effect, you're just spending more time in the woods. You're learning more about what, what right. all game is doing on your property. Yeah. Yep. That's right. Well, Mike, it, it sounds like you know predator control, predators really are a problem for guys that are wanting to you know, have better huntable populations of deer and turkeys and small game. And it's something that's overlooked right now. A lot of people are, are allowing these, these poachers, so to speak, to be on their property and they're not doing anything about it. I know you guys offer some crash courses on the subject and how to help people get started uh, with trapping. Well, tell me a little bit about those courses. If somebody wants a crash course, how do they, how do they go about doing it? Well, historically, 
the Department of Conservation started a program 11 years ago. Uh, in fact, I started it. Had a pilot program. We had 25 students in first class. It has gained a lot of momentum over the last next 10 years. We have certified over 300 students per year into this program. The easiest way to get signed up is go to OutdoorAlabama.com, go to the trapping segment, and you'll look up trapping classes. And we'll have them listed right there. I've got uh, one, two, I've got four more coming up this year. They are absolutely free. I, I do limit our classes to 25 students just because it's hard to deal with 300 people in the woods at one time. You don't really have a great success rate, so we limit it to 25 students. I know the kids that have done it, they love it. I'd, I'd rather take a child out and teach them how to do it the right way than catch something myself. I get a bigger thrill out of that than me catching a 60-pound beaver. <laughs> if, if me and a child catch a 60-pound beaver, that kid's dragging it out. I'm too old to do that nowadays. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, good deal, Mike. Well, thank you uh, for being on the show today. I've, we've learned a lot yes, and, and definitely – you know, kind of open, I believe we opened some eyes on, on a problem that's out there that most folks are not addressing. This has been Mike Sievering, the uh, conservation director with the National Trappers Association. Mike, have a good 2019, man. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Mike. All right, bud. Thank you. Clint, that was a lot of interesting uh, information from, from Mike, and I enjoyed hearing that rut report from Matt earlier in the show and kind of talking a little bit of strategy when it comes to southern whitetails, a whole different ball game than what, what they do in the Midwest. But It is. You know, I mean, how does this all relate back to a landowner uh, or a guy that's maybe looking at buying land? What do you see uh, when you're out selling land and marketing land? Do you find that buyers are willing to pay a premium for a land that can show uh, quality management, whether it's quality deer management or uh, some kind of predator control, what's important to buyers right now? Well, I mean, I think it's all inclusive. You know, they all complement each other. And, you know, sort of like we talked about earlier is, you know, we're all landowners typically focusing on that end goal of improving the overall quality of the hunt on their property for whatever species they're chasing. And any evidence you've got to support that, to show a potential buyer that, you know, what you've been doing, the kind of results you've experienced, uh, any of that, it, it all helps uh, to, to show that it's really turnkey and ready to walk in and start enjoying. So I always recommend that landowners that are participating in management programs like this and whatever shape or size that they're doing to make sure that they're tracking it with good photos, uh, videos, anything they have, just to be able to reflect back in the future. All right, folks, do you like the show? If you do, subscribe and give us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you don't like the show or you'd like us to email it to you, drop us a line at pros at landhunting.com. And that's landhunting with no G. We'll see you next week.